Well, hello and welcome to the latest in a series of podcasts that the 1989 Generation Initiative is hosting as part of its wider current affairs cycle for 2016-2017, Talking Europe. Talking Europe seeks to bring you the visions and perspectives of young people and experts from across the continent on events as they happen, where they happen. Our Talking Europe podcasts respond to European current affairs through a range of fun and interesting episodes, bringing you the views of young Europeans from across the continent on anything from the implications of Brexit to the US presidential elections. And today's podcast is part of a mini-series on the year 2017 and its upcoming challenges, in which we blast through the issues with the help of our 89ers and experts. I am Michael Katakis, the president of the 1989 Generation Initiative, and with me today are two great participants who will be bringing this debate to life. We're delighted to welcome Marika Kleiner, who is an associate professor of European politics here at the European Institute at LSE, and Boris Ajaganov, who is content officer for global affairs at the 1989 Generation Initiative. So I'll divide the podcast up into an introductory section in which the participants will outline which they feel are the main challenges that Europe will face in the year before honing in on one or two of those and then suggesting ways in which these might best be dealt with. Naturally, given our time limitations, we can't touch on everything, but don't fret, there will be another podcast on the year 2017 to fill in any gaps. Starting with Marika, 2016 was clearly a bit of a roller coaster for the EU. Will 2017 be any better, and which do you see as the most important challenges? Yeah, thanks, uh, Michael, for asking, also for inviting me to the podcast. Um, I guess uh, it's it's going to be equally sort of um, inst- unstable and um, and a bit of a roller coaster, just as uh, 2016. I think the most important issues next year, uh, or this year actually, um, are going to be the elections in France and the Netherlands. Um, I exclude um, Germany at the moment because at the moment it looks like like uh, the far right in Germany, the alternative für Deutschland, is not going to be strong enough to um, hope for participation in government. But um, I've become careful with predictions uh, last year, so I, I just uh, put, put in this caveat. But uh, the elections in France and the Netherlands, um, they will be very close. Um, there is a chance of... Um, a far-right majority in both cases. And if that is the case, there will be a lot of volatility um, in the financial markets, um, which, again, could threaten the stability of banks um, in Italy, France, uh, perhaps even Germany, and thus, again, the Eurozone. Um, so I think this is, uh, this is definitely the issue to, to look at. Mm-hmm. And what about you, Boris? Main challenges and... Uh... How will the EU have to deal with these? Yes, thank you, Michael, for the question. Um, I think the EU will still face uh, the challenge of the quagmire in Syria, uh, the process of political unification and stabilization in in Libya, and the humanitarian disaster there as well, uh, which it has been not it has been able to re- to resolve this uh, last year. And it doesn't be better position to do it this year. That's going to be a big test. Of course, the the, the high salience of the issue of, of refugees, which has uh, partly then affected the decision of the UK to exit the European Union, it's still going to be a big problem for the for the European Union unless the crisis in the Middle East are going to be uh, resolved. And of course, in this context, it's important that the EU will find a functional way to deal with with um, Erdogan's Turkey which it has not found to date. 
and it's arguably arguably it has actually lost leverage uh, versus Turkey. The Minsk II agreement uh, on how to deal with Russia's um, invasion of eastern Ukraine is also going to be a test. Uh, and in that context, it's, it's important uh, how Germany is going to look like this year, whether the SPD socialist party takes over power and it becomes more understanding, um, so to say, of Russian aggression, or, or whether Merkel perseveres. And my final point is, of course, neighborhood policy. There is a, an Eastern Partnership Summit planned for, for November 2017 uh, in Brussels. It's going to review the results of the last summit, which was held in Riga in 2015, and discuss the way forward in further strengthening cooperation between the partner countries and the EU. And of course, we know that the way forward hasn't been completely straightforward. Moldova has uh, seen a, a reform a reversal. Um, Ukraine is now closer to solving its problems uh, with corruption, while Georgia is, is chugging on. Mm -hmm. Well, clearly um, a very broad array of, uh, of, of issues touched upon, both external and, and of course, internal. Uh, starting with the, the internal, um, Marika, we discussed the elections in, in the Netherlands, France and, and Germany. In the context of the Brexit vote and other victories for um, so-called populist candidates at uh, European and indeed global elections, thinking also of Trump, does this strengthen the, does this does this populist trend strengthen the far right? If we if we had not seen victories for the Brexit camp, victories for Trump, would these groups be be significantly weakened? I think it might actually have the opposite effect. Um, what we've seen in the last couple of, um, of, of months is that actually Brexit um, has led to um, a greater popularity of the European Union. And it's done what the European Union has failed to do before, namely to associate the European Union with uh, some vision and an idea of um, sort of a liberal, open open Europe um, simply by being the opposite, by being attacked by Trump and the far right. Um, and this might prove very important because it was um, turnout that in fact um, really made the difference in the, um, in the Brexit vote, but also in the Trump vote, in that um, liberals were just not really engaged enough in order to turn up to the to the uh, to the poll to the election and uh, really cast their vote and i think um, now it's become more apparent than ever that even if you don't fully agree with um, what the the majority parties what the populist uh, popular parties not the populist parties are doing that um, still you will have to to turn uh, turn up at the election. So I think um, in this sense, um, the populist um, sort of uh, wave in, in the Anglo-Saxon countries might actually have, have, this, uh, have this opposite um, unintended effect in strengthening um, support for the European Union. But this would be <clears throat> on, the, on the voter level. On the other hand, there's, of course, the problem that uh, there there might be some illicit, some illicit uh, interference in the elections, with, for instance, um, a Breitbart um, uh, editor and uh, and journalist uh, being really 
um, in the in the in the realm of um, of the U.S. president uh, with Steve Bannon and uh, potential Russian hackers interfering in the election. So those are definitely things that make me worry worried, and um, I hope um, are going to be going to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. I think the the question of media interference is a is a very very important one, um, and yes, the uh, the Brexit movement and the Trump movement do do certainly strengthen the the elements of the media that would support populist um, parties across Europe. Boris, I'm interested to see what you what you think of the the upcoming elections in in the Netherlands and, and in France. Um, do you feel that we're likely to see a, a, a continuation of, the similar, of a similar trend, as um, Marika alluded to at the start? Um, and if, for instance, you get a, a Diet Wilders uh, winning the election in the Netherlands or Marine Le Pen winning in France, will the EU survive? Yes, Michael. Um, France is a very interesting case here because, of course, the it is, it is important... Um, to first um, try to understand how the final configuration in the French elections is going to be like. So first of all, we don't necessarily know that whether Le Pen is going to be in the final frontrunners, and if she is, we don't know who her opponents are going to be. So to, con to quote one newspaper with some news from yesterday, uh, the two lefts in, in France uh, have gone to war. Uh, with the former education minister, Benoit Amour, pulling ahead in the left-wing primary uh, on Sunday. And he was followed then by Prime Minister Manuel Valls. Of course, uh, Amo uh, is seen as um, as maybe something like Bernie Sanders uh, in the U.S., more of a more of a populist uh, leftist candidate, while Valls casts himself as a more as someone who stands for a responsible left. And so it really depends on which one of these candidates the French people think uh, should stand against against Le Pen. And, and the American people were were facing the same choice in the US. The choice was, was either an established candidate uh, in Hillary Clinton against Donald Trump or a more populist candidate against Donald Trump. And the question is, uh, will a more populist candidate be a better option against another populist candidate in France? Or is it not going to work that way? And that's, of course, very difficult to certain. I think in Germany, Germany is always going to, to remain uh, a beacon of stability for the European Union in the sense that whether the left or the right uh, in the next election are going to win, Germany is, is, is going to be a very, a very pro-European uh, pro nation. Mm -hmm. And so the second part of the question was uh, whether we thought if we had uh, victories for Le Pen or Diet Wilders or indeed uh, the alternative for Deutschland in Germany, which does seem unlikely, uh, will the EU be able to survive these body blows? Mariga? It depends on what, what you really mean by, uh, by survive. I think, mm -hmm. yes, uh, the European Union is, um, is going to survive um, the degree of interdependence and um, in all likelihood also the institutions. It's rather... A, uh, I think a matter of the functioning mm -hmm. of um, the the institutions. For instance, there's a, I think there's a potential danger of um, lower compliance with EU law, 
or a paralysis of the European Council in the face of major problems. I think those are the more immediate concerns. Mm -hmm. In terms of survival, I find it very hard to believe that, um, at least in the um, in the short or medium term, it could be at stake for the simple reason um, there's a saying in in in, uh, in English that it's very hard or impossible to scramble eggs. And that's exactly the situation in, in Europe. Europe is the most interdependent region on so many di dimensions in the world. And um, it's difficult to compare also the, the, um, the quality of interdependence that we have today with the interdependence we had in the 1930s, mm -hmm. where indeed protectionist, uh, protectionism rose again. Today, we don't just, you know, exchange goods. We have um, production chains that uh, reach over several countries. We have um, trade within multinational corporations. So protectionisms of, uh, protectionism of any form usually always backfires also in your own economy so that it will be very, very difficult to um, really raise... Um, protectionist barriers. Mm -hmm. So I find it very hard to believe. And in fact, the Brexit negotiations show already at the moment how incredibly difficult it is to withdraw from the European Union. And in fact, to withdraw in a sense that um, it really uh, it is really a withdrawal and not just a membership in um, under a different names name. And that is actually just the United Kingdom, which um, is one of the least interdependent countries in, in Europe. It's not even in the Eurozone, whereas um, countries like the Netherlands and France are so deeply mixed and entangled in, in European interdependencies that it would be... Um, I, I find it inconceivable that um, really a withdrawal of these countries would be anywhere... Um, in the realm of possibilities in, in kind of the next 15 to 20 years. <laughs> this is a, a very hopeful assessment. I'm, uh, I'm sure a lot of people will be heartened by this. Now, um, putting on a sort of pundit's hat, if you were to predict, and this is a question for, for both, but I'd like to start with Boris, uh, the outcome of the elections in the Netherlands in France and indeed in Germany, what would you, what would you predict? What would you say, Boris? I personally, despite despite Brexit and despite the election in the United States, I personally do not believe the populist alternatives are are going to are going to win anywhere. And I think part of the reason why they're not going to win is because Brexit and Trump happened, and because people are able to very clearly see that. Uh, populist um, governments or populist politicians who who promise st things um, on the scale of uh, attempting to unscramble eggs <laughs> is mm -hmm. the promises are just very very difficult to to hold up and it's very difficult to, to, con to for them to control media and attempt to instill in the people um, the idea that they are succeeding because it's very difficult for them to succeed and on, on a side note it's it's evident that the public administrations, I mean, the officials in the governments of the UK and the US, are not themselves inclined to to help their new governments um, to achieve their goals. And so it's very difficult to see how they could be successful. 
and so again against that sort of against that sort of background that we've seen in in the past six to eight months i think voters in in europe in continental europe are waking up to the fact that uh, some promises can be too good to be true mm -hmm. so you're you're not of the opinion that Wilders or Le Pen will win in the Netherlands or France, respectively. Uh, Marijke, you alluded to a similar point earlier, but if you were to make a prediction. Um, yes, um, but um, I, I guess in, in the case of Brexit, I was more or less right with my prediction, but in the case of, of Trump, as probably <laughs> everybody else, um, I was uh, absolutely wrong. So yeah. I find it very hard really to, to make a prediction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but let's, let's put it that way. If things remain as they are, it really looks like um, there's going to be another Merkel government mm. and I think also in at least in, in France um, I find it unlikely that um, Le Pen would would win the second round uh, let's put it that way but of course sort of the the enemies and the far right enemies of the popular popular parties and the, and the far right knows that it only takes um, a terrorist attack or some launching of sensitive information right before the election in order to really sort of veer voters away from um, from the dominant parties and um, it's it's not entirely out of uh, improbable improbable that something like this might happen and so far i'd i'd rather you know i, I still draw a large question mark right. over over those predictions Sure, sure. Let's hope um, nothing of the sort uh, comes to pass. We mentioned Trump on a number of occasions. He is the sort of elephant in, in the room. He was inaugurated as president on Friday and will uh, start his first uh, 100 days in office. What do you feel, Boris, that these uh, 100 days will bring in terms of uh, foreign policy challenges for the EU? Yes, thank you, Michael, for the question. I think the first consequence of, of Trump's integration we've seen, we've seen already, and that is he has said, he has said no to, to TTIP. So the trade agreement between the US and the EU is definitely not going to happen. Um, that's number one. So the EU cannot expect the US market to open up. And uh, that is a, an avenue for growth lost already. Uh, which then seems to perhaps maybe speak to the narrative of populist movements in Europe and maybe they have a point then they can say uh, that, you know, uh, we need to focus more on, uh, on our own economies. Uh, we, cannot, we cannot sort of trust uh, globalization to, to solve our problems. I think, I think a second issue is um, Europe's normative power, its power to, to make rules for the world, its power to enforce uh, sanctions on uh, on countries around the world. The fact of the matter is that whenever the EU enacts sanctions on any country in the world, uh, its sanctions are are not robust enough and just not important enough without uh, equal support from the United States. That's why the EU and the US tend to implement sanctions together. When the US does, the EU does, and vice versa. So with the new administration, uh, which uh, seems to be averse to, to, to follow sort of the, the rule book of the, of the rules-based international order and maybe move towards a, a world where 
different countries tend to have areas of influence around them. It is hard to see how, how the EU's normative power could survive in such an atmosphere. So looking, for example, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it's difficult to see how the EU could keep enforcing its sanctions against Russia if the U.S. suddenly drops them, because then the value of the EU sanctions uh, just becomes much less, much less significant. Uh, so that's that's uh, that's very dangerous for for the EU's place in the world. I think. Mm-hmm. And Marika, uh, the same question to you: What what uh, distinct uh, policy challenges do, does Donald Trump pose to Europe? I think there's a difference between the sort of the short term. Um, and uh, even medium term and the long term. Mm-hmm. In the medium, uh, short and medium term, and you asked previously about the first 100 mm-hmm. days, I think that uh, things will be as usual. Um, even though, again, um, you know, this guy is very difficult to predict. Mm-hmm. But, but um, other than that, I think um, there is... There It's not, there's going to be business as, as usual, except for further talk among the European uh, member states about defense and propping up their own defense. Mm-hmm. Um, there's um, already some um, some action here in, in, in Germany with um, sort of talk about greater spending on, on, on defense and security. The reason I say this is even though his remarks about um, NATO, about the European Union, are really worrying, sort of the quote-unquote good news is that Europe is absolutely not on the top of his of Trump's agenda. Mm-hmm. It is also not on the top of um, of his uh, on the top of the agenda of his supporters. I mean, most of his uh, supporters are of European descent, and it's clearly not um, sort of supported. Um, his rhetoric um, by the GOP, so um, the sort of Republican establishment. And he's going to have other things to worry about So, and that are really on top of his agenda. The first one would be um, trade with China and sort of the issue of the Taiwan Strait. Um, the second is um, already launched, the renegotiation of NAFTA, um, and with that, the building of the wall, of the wall mm-hmm. to Mexico. Then there are issues that are a little bit out of in co- of control, but will totally blow up, which is um, possibly another Israeli-Palestinian war mm-hmm. with uh, settlers moving into East Jerusalem, and uh, the fallout of the repeal of Obamacare, as well as not to mention the various lawsuits um, that will immediately keep him busy. So with all this on his agenda, I doubt that he would really take on another fight, which would be um, that is really unpopular with his supporters and the GOP, which would be sort of re- withdrawal from NATO and sort of an active undermining of the European Union. Having said this, um, inaction is, of course, also really dangerous. And um, the question is what Russia is um, going to do and mm-hmm. if. Trump would actively withdraw um, the American uh, troops from from the Baltics and uh, sort of the uh, the bo- and, and Norway and the border to to Russia, um, but I think this is going to be more of a medium to long term issue rather than something that we would have to expect in the in the near future. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Marika. Um, as you all know, 
the uh, 1989 Generation Initiative is holding its uh, conference on tackling populism. Hope over fear on the 15th and 16th of February, so it's coming up. Um, how do we tackle populism in 2017? That's the big question that we're asking at this conference. And so let's uh, let's let's get a sneak preview from first our expert Marika Klein and then Boris Marika tackling populism. Well, that's uh, the the million dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> Obviously, um, something has to be done in order to sort of assure and win back uh, the frustrated um, voters, um, the voters that have been left behind. But it's very difficult, actually, to, to have one strategy throughout Europe, and I'm not sure if Europe, in fact, can do something, because those that are left behind in terms of demographics, but also because of, um, of in terms of the reasons why they feel left behind, those reasons are very different um, across Europe. Um, in Germany, it has a lot to do with sort of regional structural change, with sort of uh, the transformation of uh, the former GDR. Um, in, uh, in 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 the UK, it's a it's a problem of the loss of manufacturing, also a regional issue. And in France, uh, there are yet other other issues to tackle. I think, though, what combines um, it all, or what has really sort of put fuel into all of this, is um, extra EU uh, migration. So especially, mm. um, let's say, Muslim immigration. In, into Europe, which just created a, a kind of anxiety and sort of a um, feeling for the vulnerability of all states in a sort of borderless globalized world. And I think that uh, this will have to be on top of the European agenda in one way or another. And I think what uh, Boris said at the beginning about sort of the role of Turkey and sort of dealing in one way or the other with uh, the, the crisis in, in, the, in North, Northern Africa um, is going to be key to this. Um, but uh, don't don't ask me for policy <laughs> solutions. Um, not not entirely sure how this can, can be tackled. Yes, it's, it's difficult through through policy, certainly. Um, Boris, Maraka mentioned the uh, the point about immigration you brought up and the uh, um, very strong link with the rise of populist parties. How would you tackle populism? Michael, I think the EU has already recognized and is trying to gather around a solution or a, a set of solutions to show the quote, the common man, unquote, so to say, uh, that that there is value in European integration and in the four freedoms of the movement of goods, people, services, and capital. Somehow the average citizen of the European member states and of the European Union must see in their daily or weekly lives that their life is better off with European integration than without. And I think one of the issues with this is Europe and the European model it has very much built on this negative integration model. So taking taking a market logic to everything and um, sort of scaling scaling back on additional bureaucracies, scaling back on borders, scaling back on regulation, standardizing everything, this is all very good. But I think the average person can't see that something has necessarily been created. So things are taken away, and in financial, economic terms, in terms of efficiency, surely things are better. This is, a, this is mathematically absolutely true of course but 
perhaps people see that there is a lack of something something being created here. Maybe it is a European demos or or you know visible European projects or institutions around around them in their in their daily lives. Certainly, this is missing today, and it, and it has to happen. One of these things could perhaps be the introduction of some form of basic income on or on national or or in the European level to be combined with with existing uh, European Union level projects. And of course, as Mariki has mentioned, migration is extremely important because basically European leaders had had assumed that migration is not so important a problem to the to the to the average person in Europe. Uh, and apparently, a large a large proportion of the population seems to view immigration as a problem. And in view, in view of this, the EU must somehow demonstrate, while still standing by its liberal values, it must still somehow demonstrate that it takes responsibility and doesn't ignore the views on the com- of the common man uh, on immigration. And that balance is going to be very difficult to strike. Mm-hmm. And it really is a very exciting debate, which will be uh, continued or uh, launched rather at the at the conference in in February, which will be the start of an eight month eight month policy cycle, uh, which will lead to the uh, articulation of policy proposals. That which we said was so difficult, uh, it is uh, quite a challenge, um, but an exciting one, and it's uh, got a nice taster of the types of discussions that we're going to have just at the end of this podcast today. So I'll thank you very much, uh, Marika Kleiner and Boris Ajeganov for joining us today here at the 1989 Generation Initiative and discussing 2017 and the challenges that we face as a European Union. And um, I invite you to tune into our next episode, which will be again on the uh, theme of 2017. And we'll be uh, welcoming another set of 89ers and another expert. And you'll find out who that is when you listen to the podcast. So I thank you very much and wish you good evening. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Mahaika.